John chapter number 4, a very common passage when it comes to mission conferences. We can learn today from the example of our Lord and our Savior. If we're going to be followers of Christ, it would do us well to see how He lived. John chapter 4, we're going to read verses 31 through 34, but then we'll go back to verse 1 as we get into the message here. John 4, 31 through 34. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. If Jesus' meat was to do God's will, I ask you this morning, what is yours? And if some have compassion, the theme is, making a difference. We read in Matthew 9.35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So how are we to be like Jesus and accomplish this task of compassion and of reaching the lost and fulfilling the Great Commission? In order to fulfill the Great Commission, just like Jesus, we must be committed to do the will of God. Just as Jesus meet... His food, His sustenance was to do the will of the Father. If we're going to fulfill the great commission in our lives that God has given to each of us to reach the world with the gospel, our meat must be to do the will of God as well. And speaking of this passage of John 4, we often focus on the Samaritan woman, on her great need, on having compassion on people like her, on Jesus' method of reaching ones like this woman. And all of these things are good, and and each one of these aspects could be a message in itself. We could spend weeks in this passage. But today I'd like to focus on another part of the story, something even greater than the Samaritan woman's need, something greater than having compassion on those in need, something greater than our methodology of reaching the lost, something, in speaking of missions, we sometimes skip over and don't give much attention, and that's the specific will of God in the matter of missions. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and preach the gospel to every creature. And He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And and some would point to the Scriptures like this and say, See, it's God's will that we all go. It's plainly spelled out in the Bible, so just go where you see a need and you can be sure you're fulfilling God's will, right? With that logic, that means that every American church should be sending missionaries to all the other 195 countries and Every church from the other 195 countries should be sending missionaries to America and the rest of the world, not just to reach their own ethnic groups that are living here, but to reach Americans as well. And if our country is close to them, they should just come here by creative access methods in order to reach America with the gospel, right? After all, the Great Commission wasn't only given to Americans. So then the church in America sends an American missionary to Pakistan and the Pakistani missionary goes to New York City and... Chinese missionary goes to Egypt, and an Egyptian goes to Italy, and Italian goes to Canada, and a Canadian goes to Japan, and 
Japanese goes to Mexico, and the Mexican goes to Cuba, and maybe then the church in Cuba decides to send a missionary to Shelby, North Carolina. And early one Saturday morning, you're trying to sleep in after all your hard schoolwork. And you get a knock on your door from a guy from Cuba that has come to Shelby, North Carolina. And you see, before he knocked on your door, he had, and before he left his country of Cuba, he had studied Shelby extensively on the Internet using Google Translate because he didn't speak English yet. And as he studied and came up with all the statistics about Shelby and the needs here, he made a video to show to his church, a tear-jerking video. And it talked all about Shelby. And it showed videos of the godless town that Shelby is. Its school system is perverse, teaching ungodly things to its children. Its people are lost in sin. The average income is low compared to the rest of America, but it's rich compared to Cuba. And its people are, are idolatrous, getting loans to buy expensive things to satisfy their flesh. They work two and three jobs to pay for all their nice things. And they do this with smiles on their faces, but their hearts are empty because they have no peace. This town has many churches, but they have no gospel witness, says this Cuban to his church. The churches claim to speak for God, but their people live like they have no God. It's a dangerous place with a language difficult to learn, and, but by God's grace, I'm going to study English for a whole year. And then I'm going to plant a church. And I'm going to train those in the church that I plant to reach out to the rest of the world. I'm going to turn that church over to a national American. And after I reach Shelby and plant a church there, I'm going to reach out to the other cities and towns all around North Carolina and then around America to plant other churches. So this guy finally gets to America and he takes a year of language school down at the Methodist church who gives free ESL classes. And then he rents a storefront in uptown Shelby. And he puts up a sign and he calls it the Church of Shelby. He prints up invitation and tracts that he's personally written because he's fluent in English now because he took a year of language school. And now he's on your doorstep trying to tell you in broken English that you should visit his church, come over to his house for a Saturday Bible study because your religion is not going to save you. And he can show you the Bible way to have true peace. It's a silly illustration, but with a lot of truth to it. I say all that just to get you to think a little bit. Missionaries go through this when they go to foreign fields. But if God's people from all over the world are busy trying to obey a command to take the gospel to every creature without the guiding hand of God and His people submitted to doing His specific will in their lives, we end up with a scene full of chaos and division. In this passage in John 4 today, I want us to focus on the underlying story of Jesus' absolute commitment to doing the will of His Father. Though Jesus is God, when He came to earth, He was fully man. And as a man, He submitted Himself to the will of His Father. Unequivocally, completely, in every aspect of His life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8 through 8 says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, 
he humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. How committed was Jesus to doing the will of God? So committed that he set aside his splendor and he became a man. A man who was despised and rejected of men. A man acquainted with sorrows and grief. A man who humbled himself to obey the will of God his Father, even though that obedience meant him going to the cross to die for our sins. It is Jesus' commitment to obey the will of the Father that I want to speak to today. And I want to speak of what his commitment led him to do. First, we see Jesus' commitment to the will of the Father carried him from a place of success to a place of disregard. Jesus' commitment to the Father, to the will of the Father, carried him away from a place of success to a place of disregard. Let's read verses 1 through 5 here. It says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. In verse 1, we see that Jesus was doing pretty well. It says that the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus and his, baptized, and his disciples made and baptized more disciples than John the Baptist himself. So John the Baptist would have been in prison about this time. Why was he in prison? For preaching the truth and for pointing people to, to Jesus and for calling them to repentance. And once Jesus at the baptism of Christ pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, multitudes began to follow Christ. The disciples of Christ began to multiply. And John ended up, he was still preaching, but he ended up being put in prison. They hated him. Jesus had become successful. He had many, many disciples. You could say his Judean ministry was growing. So why leave a place of success right now when things are going so well? It's because Jesus was committed to doing the will of his Father. The Pharisees, seeing his success, wanted him dead, but it wasn't the will of the Father that at that moment he should die. So instead of continuing in the same place, growing a larger following of disciples, he leaves. He quietly just leaves Judea a place of tremendous success, and he departs into Galilee. So you've got Judea down south, and you've got Galilee in the north. Samaria is right in, right in the middle. And it says here in verse 4 that he must needs go through Samaria. The typical Jew wouldn't travel through Samaria. The logical route, the easiest route. Why not? The history goes back for centuries. We can get more into that history later, but suffice it to say the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were despised. They were detested. If at all possible, they were disregarded as if they didn't even exist. Samaritans had intermarried with pagan Gentiles and were hated for, their, for, for, for being impure. And The Jews so hated them and so disregarded them that rather than go through Samaria... They would take extra time and go the long way around Samaria to get up to Galilee or from Galilee down to Samaria. They wouldn't go through. Even going through, the route would have taken many hard days on foot if they had traveled through. And here we have Jesus, the master, the creator, a Jew, 
traveling through Samaria. Earlier, Jesus had himself had told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he said, These twelve sent Jesus forth, and he commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now we read in verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Why the change all of a sudden? He was doing the will of his father. Those words must needs, that's that's an imperative statement. It wasn't just a good idea that Jesus had here that popped into his brain. It wasn't just a great idea to leave a place of success with a large following of disciples and to head north through Samaria where nobody went to get up to Galilee. It wasn't just a whim of Jesus to save time so he wouldn't have to go around. Why was it imperative that he go through Samaria? You might say, well, he knew the Samaritan woman was there and she needed to encounter the Lord and that might be one of the reasons. That is true. She needed the Lord and the the whole crowd that she would win to him, they needed the Lord as well. But I think there are many more reasons that we don't even know and will not know till we get to heaven. But the main underlying deeper reason is that Jesus needed to obey the will of his Father. And it was God's will that he go through there. At times, God calls us to do things that we don't understand. Jesus was committed to do God's will. I mean, weren't multitudes of disciples being made in Judea? Weren't weren't there many there that also still needed Christ? And He left those. Jesus always, always did His Father's will. No matter the circumstance, no matter the cost, no matter whether he was having apparent success or not in his present place of ministry, he went through Samaria in obedience to his Father's will. In obedience to the command of Christ, you and I are to take the gospel to the whole world. The Great Commission, we've read it this morning. But I ask you this morning, where do you go first? Out of 8 billion people in the world, how do you decide who needs it the most? How long do you stay in each place? When do you come back? When do you go somewhere else? When have you stayed long enough to be considered successful? The answer to all of these questions is not to sit down and write out strategies on a piece of paper of how you can reach the world. The answer to all of these questions is to simply be committed to doing the specific will of God every moment of every day. God Himself is the owner of the harvest field. He sees the big picture that you and I cannot see. We only see the step right in front of us. And so He guides us along the next step. And as we take a step of obedience, He'll guide us to the next step. And as long as we're taking steps within His will, we can be sure that we're obeying Him. We can be sure that we're fulfilling our place in the harvest field. In the end, if we're all committed to simply doing the will of our Father in heaven, the harvest field will have the right laborers at the right time. And the fields that are ripe, they will be gathered. God sees the big picture and He knows how best to use each and every one of you in His harvest field. And make no mistake, He wants to use each and every one of you in different varied ways. Missions is not a cookie-cutter approach. There are some that may think that. But God has a place for all of you in His harvest field. 
He sees the big picture and if you'll be submitted to do His will, He'll show you what He wants you to do and He'll lead you and you can be sure that you're successful because you're obeying His will. It is not for you and I to determine the where, the when, and the how to obey God's will or the how to preach God's God's commission to every creature, I should say. But God has a specific will for you and if you'll determine to obey it with your life, He'll use you. But it starts with following the example of Jesus our Lord. If the creator of the universe, God Himself, could humble Himself and submit to God His Father, and then and He indwells you, the believer, that means He can enable you to do His will as well. Don't shirk back and think, I can't do this. Of course you can't, but God can do it through you. If you'll just submit and say, here am I, Lord, send me. I'll do whatever. He'll lead you and He'll guide you and He'll use you. There is a place in the harvest for you. Jesus' commitment to the will of God carried Him from a place of success to a place of disregard. Second, Jesus' commitment to the will of the Father caused Him to suffer weariness, exhaustion, and thirst. Verse 5 through 7, it says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Traveling on foot through rugged terrain was no easy task. The trip would have been many, many, many days of journey on foot. If he was taking his time and going slow, they say it could take a couple weeks on foot. But if you're just cruising on through, maybe six days to get from uh, Judea up to, up to Galilee, going through Samaria. So a long journey, arduous journey. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Didn't everyone travel on foot in those days? This, how is that different than everybody else? True, they did. Most of them. But Jesus wasn't just any man. He was God. The creator of the universe, the very one who spoke the world into existence, the very one who made the path on which he was walking. John 1 says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And we read earlier in Philippians that Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus, the king of kings, he was... But instead of traveling like a king, he traveled on foot like a normal man. He walked like everyone else. But even more than everyone else, even more than a normal man, he gave up even the normal human comfort of living in his own home and enjoying a life of ease as other human beings would have done in that day. Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I'll follow you whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes. The birds have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. Even as a man, Jesus gave up the comforts of home, and he set about doing the will of this Father. We read in verse 6, it says, Therefore, Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey wearied 
we get the picture of a difficult, labor-intensive journey on foot for several days. Jesus now, being though 100% God, he's also 100% man, and being a man, he's weary. He's completely worn out. He's, he's tired. He's hot. He's sweaty. He's dirty. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's an ordinary-looking Jew with nothing, outwardly speaking, to be desired. And he plops himself down and sits on the well, exhausted and weary, in the middle of a hot day, in Samaria, in a place where Jews didn't go. Think about this incredible commitment to him doing the will of his Father. I think sometimes we minimize that Jesus was a man. We shouldn't emphasize that greater than him being God. He was both. But he was a man here. And he was committed to the Father even though it caused him weariness and thirst. He didn't have to be weary. He had every right to the glories of heaven. He didn't have to be hungry and thirsty. He didn't have to travel cross country as a pauper. He didn't have to sweat and work and travel through Samaria. He didn't have to live as a homeless wanderer trusting God for strength and for his daily bread. We don't find him doing miracles to benefit himself. He made food out of nothing for others. But when he fasted himself 40 days and nights in the wilderness and the devil came and tempted him, he refused to overcome his physical weakness, extreme hunger and his extreme thirst by turning stones into bread and making water appear. He didn't let the fact that he was God overcome the fact that he was also man. He didn't miraculously not feel pain. But instead he felt it as you and I would and he embraced it. He didn't use his power as God to allow himself to not feel hunger and thirst, but rather he set aside his power and humbled himself as a man so he could feel as you and I feel when we're tired. Are you tired today? Have you come with a weary heart? When we're weary and we're tired and we suffer and we thirst, Jesus truly understands He felt it just the same. His muscles ached. His feet were tired. His back was sore. His mouth was parched. He had a crick in his neck from sleeping on the ground and using a rock as his pillow, and he was weary. Why did he go through this? Why was he weary? He was committed to doing the will of his Father. And as a result of doing God's will, we find him exhausted and weary and thirsty. Doesn't that fly in the face of what people would say is the result of doing God's will? What can we learn from Jesus' example this morning? As you go out into the harvest field of the world, if you're committed to do God's will, you can go when you have no strength left. You can give when you feel you have nothing left to give. You can stay when you feel like quitting. You can leave a place of success when you feel like staying. You can serve when you're tired and you feel like you need to be served. You can do all of these things because He will give you His strength to obey His will. Hebrews 4.15 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but it was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Jesus understands where we are and He understands our infirmities and He understands our human difficulties. He went through them and He still stayed committed to doing God's will as our example. How are you going to obey the command of Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel? You must be committed to doing His will and His will will enable you. His strength will enable you. So Jesus' commitment to the will of the Father, it carried Him away from a place of success to a place of disregard. It caused them to suffer weariness and exhaustion and thirst. Third, we see that Jesus' commitment to the will of the Father compelled him to converse with, no, with one who no one else would. It compelled him to converse with one who no one else would. Verse number 7, it says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. This wasn't some jerk of a man saying, give me something to drink, lady. She recognized that he was asking graciously when he said, give me to drink. Because she replies and says, how is it that thou a Jew dost ask drink of me being a Samaritan? Okay, so it's, it's one thing to travel through Samaria. The Jews wouldn't do it. Quite another to be sitting on a well and conversing with a Samaritan woman. This is unheard of. You can see that clearly in verse 27. It says his disciples came upon this and marveled that he talked with a woman. But Jesus had no issue speaking with anyone, did he? Not just a Samaritan woman with whom no one else would speak from Israel, but one of the most wicked, immoral of sinners. He chose a time when he could have a private conversation with her. He loved them all. He could talk to them with kindness and graciousness. His commitment to God's will led him through Samaria, led him there just at the right time, a time that wasn't the normal time for the ladies of the town to go to the well for water. That's why it was just her. It was the middle of the day. But God's will set up the circumstances for an uninterrupted conversation with a woman who no other disciple would have dared to even speak. And I love his first words to her. Give me to drink. These words that Jesus spoke, give me to drink, they show his humility and his human need. I assume that his disciples carried something to dip water with from various wells as they traveled, but because he says they're gone off to buy food and he doesn't have anything to, to draw with. Jesus didn't just say to the lady, give me to drink as a pickup line to get her to talk to him. It wasn't a conversation starter or an opening phrase like some door-to-door salesman trying to initiate conversation by asking for a drink. Jesus really was thirsty. He really did need water. His mouth really was parched and he was weary and he traveled a long journey. He had needs. Think about that. The creator of the universe had needs. The one who made the water allowed himself to suffer in need of water. His absolute commitment to the will of God caused him to be in such need that the only one available that could fulfill his human need was the very one that needed him to fulfill her spiritual need. Think about the humility of our creator to humble himself, to be at the mercy 
of a detested and despised immoral Samaritan woman just to get some water that he desperately needed. We can learn from Jesus in this. As we serve God sometimes in this harvest field of the world, whether as a missionary on a foreign field or a layman serving God at home, sometimes God allows us to have real needs that we cannot fulfill no matter how hard we try. Needs that put us in vulnerable places. Needs that put us in awkward positions. Wouldn't you find it awkward in the middle of a hot day sitting on a well and a woman of ill repute comes to talk to you? Needs that at times compel us to speak with those who otherwise we would never have spoken in order to open doors that as those people fulfill our human needs, we're able to share with them the living water and fulfill their spiritual need. If you're not willing to suffer need, you'll never be able to reach the unreached. It's not going to happen. There are so many similarities here with the mission field. New missionaries are often at the mercy of the lost if they're going to survive physically when they first get to a mission field. To learn the language, to understand how to get housing and learn the monetary and banking system and the schooling system and learn how to buy food and learn how to cook and learn what to eat and where to go and how to drive. New missionaries are often at the mercy of the people in the country to which they go to reach for Christ. It's as if God says, oh, you love these people so much and want to see them saved. I'm going to put you at their mercy. I'm going to let you have to ask them for water and for food. I'm going to, ask, I'm going to let you have to ask them to help you learn how to live. I'm going to let them lie to you. I'm going to let them deceive you. I'm going to let them cheat you. But I'm going to send some along to help you as well. I'll give you the grace that carries you to the right ones at the right time. I'll give you the grace that compels you to speak with them and, and to, to speak with ones who no one else would speak with even. I'll give you the grace that compels you to suffer. I'll give you the grace to love them and to embrace them even when they do you harm. I'll let you suffer and thirst just like I did so that you can have opportunity to give to them the living water. Sometimes as believers, we get everything backwards. We see the lack of need as a sign of God's blessing. But perhaps we should learn that God can bless us by causing us to pass through great trials of affliction so that we do have needs, so that we can bless those who have spiritual needs with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God causes us at times to have needs that force us to interact with the lost in ways we never would have in order to have our physical needs fulfilled. And in turn, we're able to share with them the living water of Jesus Christ and God use our physical suffering for something great. It's a devious and deceitful doctrine that judges the blessing of God by whether or not we thirst, by whether or not we're hungry, by whether or not we're weary, by whether or not we suffer, and whether or not we attract crowds to follow us. How many times have we missed out on opportunities to share the gospel and see lives transformed by it because we refuse to obey the will of God because to obey that will meant going through a hardship and suffering that we just didn't want to face. 
You may say you have compassion on the lost and desire to see their salvation. But I ask you this morning, are you so committed to doing the will of God that you'll obey it, even if it carries you from a place of success to a place of disregard? Even if it causes you to suffer weariness and exhaustion and thirst? Even if it compels you to speak to people that no one else would? If we would see this world reached with the gospel, we must be committed to knowing the will of God and doing it just as Jesus was. Jesus was successful not because of the crowds that followed Him, but because He knew the will of His Father and He did it, no matter the cost, no matter what anyone thought. Not only did Jesus' commitment to the will of the Father carry Him from a place of success to a place of disregard, not only did it cause Him to suffer weariness and exhaustion and thirst, not only did it compel Him to speak with one who no one else would but last, it constrained Him to keep His focus on that which mattered, rather than on his physical need of getting his thirst quenched. Verse 7, he asks the lady for water. He had real need and was weary and thirsty. Then we get to verse 9 and it says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Rather than say, sure, here's just some water, and fulfilling his need, she gets a little feisty and she responds, almost aggressively and assertively. How is it that you, a Jew, are going to ask water from me? Jews don't talk to people like us. And at this point, if I were Jesus, I would have been tempted to say, ma'am, please, I've been traveling for days. I'm tired and I'm thirsty. I'm at your mercy. That's why I'm asking you. I don't have anything to get water with. Can you please get me some water? I'm asking because I don't have anyone else to choose from right now. And in desperation to have my physical need fulfilled, I could have easily been blind to the fact that God was using my need to open a door to fulfill her spiritual need. But our gracious Lord and Master, as weary and hungry and thirsty as He was, He put aside His own physical needs as He always did. And because of his commitment to the will of God, he recognizes the potential of meeting a spiritual need. And he's constrained to keep his focus on the things that matter instead of on continuing his plea for water. He responds, verse 10, and turns it around on her. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it was that said unto thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldst have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus didn't get sidetracked and say, man, please just give me some water. He didn't get derailed with her loaded question in verse 9. Instead, he turns it around and he says, if you knew who I was, instead of me asking you for water, you'd have beat me to it and, and you would have asked me for the living water. If only you knew who I was. What a message. If only you knew, ma'am, I'm, I'm the creator. I made the water. If only you knew, I, I'm the all-powerful one. If only you knew, I'm the one who can pardon your sins. And if only you knew, I can cleanse your sins. And if only you knew, I'm the only one who can satisfy that thirst in your heart. If only you knew, soon, I am the one that's going to die on a cross for your sins. If only you knew... I'm going to be buried. And if only you knew, I'm going to rise again three days later. I'm going to defeat death. If only you knew, I am the resurrection and the life. If only you knew, I'm the bread of life. And if you'll eat of me, you'll never hunger again. If only you knew, I am the living water, the water of life. If you have me, you'll be satisfied and never thirst again. If only you knew. Verse 11. 
And he puts aside his need for water and he begins to offer to her the living water, that which was so much more important, that which mattered in life. And to you, the believer, who says you're a follower of Christ, he's calling out to you today too. If only you know who I am, you would obey my will. If only you knew who I am, you wouldn't delay. If only you knew who I am, you would desire with all of your being to share with me, share me the living water with a lost and a dying world. If only you knew who I am, you'd be willing to be carried from a place of success to a place of disregard. If only you knew who I am, you'd be willing to suffer weariness and exhaustion and thirst. If only you knew who I am, you'd be compelled to speak with those who you don't want to speak to reach them for Christ. If only you knew who I am, you'd do my will immediately, without pause, without argument, knowing that there will be a harvest if you'll simply let me lead. No matter where it takes you, no matter what it costs you, could our problem be the same as that of the Samaritan woman? In pride, we act as if Jesus is just a weary Jew asking for our help to take the gospel to the world and he can't do it without us. But we really don't know him. We read His Word, but we don't know the God of the Word. We've devised in our minds of how we will live, of how we will serve Him, of how we will carry out the Great Commission, of how, the, way that, the, the way that we want to do His will. And we try to do things our way and devise things by our logic. But when we know Him as we should, we'll follow Him. And as we follow Him, We'll follow His example. And we'll be committed to doing His will at all costs and just saying, Lord, whatever You want me to do, I'll do. My place in the harvest field is not of my choosing. It's Yours, Lord. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, after having suffered greatly in his own life, that he did all of these things that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto his death, the servant is not greater than his Lord. We have no right to pick our field of choosing. We have no right to choose how we are going to serve God in the harvest field. Who am I to tell God how I'm going to do his will? Who am I to tell God when am I going to do his will? Who am I to tell God where I'm going to do his will? Who am I to tell God anything? He is the great one, and yet He humbled Himself to do His Father's will. We should follow His example. Verse 11 and 12, we see, it says, The Samaritan woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? So we see the Samaritan woman, she argues back, in a sense, with Jesus. She recognizes that He doesn't have anything to get water out of the well with. She recognizes the well is deep, and that was a really deep one. If you study the geography there and about that well, verse 12, she even recognizes that when he offered her living water, though she didn't yet understand what it was, she understood that he was claiming that he was greater than her ancestor Jacob that dug that very well. But she still didn't quite get it. She makes all these statements about Jesus not having anything to draw with. 
and how deep the well is and asks loaded questions about who is greater. But I love Jesus and His responses. We can learn so much from Him. Committed to do the will of God, He was constrained to keep on focus to the things that really mattered. What does He do? He responds to verse 13 and 14, and He says, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He kindly and graciously, in a sense, answers her questions in a roundabout way that doesn't cause offense and push her away. But he also does so in a way that continues to focus on that which matters, which is living water. Rather than trash her history and trash her culture and try to say that Jerusalem is the place where men should worship and yes, I'm greater than your father Jacob and and, and get into all the controversies. Jesus was gracious to her. And he embraced her culture in such a way as to answer her questions but still offer her the living water. And he said, oh, in a sense, in a roundabout way, it's like he was saying, oh yes, your, your father Jacob was great. Yes, he dug this well, and yes, he drank from it, and his children and his cattle did too. And yes, he was great to provide for you a constant supply of water for you to come every day and quench your thirst. Whosoever drinks the water shall thirst again. Yes, he did these things for her. He didn't say, oh, Jacob, he was, don't you know who made Jacob? Sometimes... Christians, when they go and talk to people about the gospel and an objection comes back, they're jerks. And they respond rudely and in pride instead of just being gracious and kind. Jesus embraced her culture. And he said, yeah, there's water here, but but you're still going to thirst if you drink it. You have to keep on drinking it. But he kept the focus on that which mattered. And rather than trash her history, he says, I have water. Even though this well is great, I have water to give you that will be a well of water springing up into you and provide everlasting life. You only need to drink of it one time and you'll be forever satisfied. He was basically saying, I am greater than Jacob, yes. But he did it in a kind way. Well, clearly the woman responds in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw it. This sounds like a wonderful thing. Please give it to me. But Jesus is not done. His commitment to the will of the Father constrains him to stay on message without getting distracted. Verse 16 through 18, he says unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that sits thou truly. He tells her to go call her husband, in essence, calling out her sin. You can't be saved until you admit that you're a sinner. Jesus doesn't give her the good news without revealing her sin and her need of a Messiah. Jesus was not ashamed to speak the truth in love right to her face because He cared about her and He loved her. 
He didn't hold back. He didn't sugarcoat and whitewash it. He told her everything and laid bare her soul to where there was nothing left to hide. And he didn't shy away as he looked at her and he told her this in compassion. You're you're telling me the truth, man. You've had five. And now you're shacked up with one. He's not even your husband. Until she admitted her sin and need, she couldn't have drank of the living water. Jesus, committed to the will of his Father, constrained himself to keep on message of that which really mattered. Her life had been laid completely open. Her soul was laid bare before Jesus. And again, she tries to sidetrack with the age-old controversy of where the Jews worship versus where the Samaritans worship, verses 19 and 20. The woman said, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Wouldn't you think something is going on if somebody told you everything that was in your heart? I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Can you have a little compassion on the lady and understand where she's coming from? She has just had her very soul and the very deepest, darkest, worst parts of her life laid bare for Jesus to see. And she's desperate to get the attention off of herself. Wouldn't you be? Verses 21 through 24, Jesus answers her question. But because he's committed to the will of the Father, he stays on message of that which matters. Verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He says the hour is coming when it doesn't matter where. It only matters who you worship. The true worshipers that are Jewish will no longer have to worship in Jerusalem. And the true Samaritan worshipers will no longer think they should worship at Mount Gerizim there in Samaria. True worshipers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. When Jesus said in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh. What hour was He speaking of? Jesus was soon to die for the sins of the world, for her sins. He would be crucified on the cross for this dear Samaritan woman and the veil of the temple would be rent in twain. And no longer would God need to be worshipped in a temple made with hands, but He would be worshipped in the heart of all those who would seek Him. And in verse 25, she comes back one last time. Her soul is laid bare for the Messiah to see. All of her attempts to get the focus off of herself have only come back to pierce her soul even deeper. And this last ditch plea of the sinful flesh throwing up its last fight and trying to push it off until later, she says, I know the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. Verse 25. But Jesus stays on message, doesn't he? Verse 26. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. What a Savior. The 
this despised, detested Samaritan woman gets to have this long, uninterrupted conversation with the very creator of the universe. Who was himself so needy, physically, so unassuming, that she felt comfortable to be able to talk with him. What a God we serve. He'll talk to you that way too. Do you take advantage of the ability to talk to your creator? He wants you to talk to others as Jesus talked to this woman in graciousness and kindness. Today, if your heart is thirsty and you're weary of trying to find satisfaction in religion or in maybe you've come here and you're saying you want to serve God and really in your soul you're trying to find true satisfaction and you've never truly found Christ and you're trying to fill the void in your heart by saying you're going to serve Him but you really don't know Him. Today He's calling out to you and He can tell you everything in your heart too. And He's shown you your sin and He's saying to you, Come, come thirsty one, I'll quench your thirst and you'll never thirst again. You won't have to look anymore. You won't have to do all kinds of works to try to please Me because I did everything and I finished it on the cross and I'll satisfy your thirst. He calls out to you today. Will you come to Him? I will satisfy you completely. He says, I am your peace. As we begin this mission conference week, I ask you this. Are you, as Jesus was, so committed to do the will of God that you're willing to be carried from a place of success to a place of disregard where maybe no one else wants to go? Are you so committed to doing the will of God in your life that you're willing to do it even if it causes you to suffer exhaustion and weariness and affliction and suffering and thirst so that you can share the living water with a thirsty world? Are you so committed to the will of God that it compels you to speak with those that no one else will speak with at the moment that He works in your heart and compels you to speak? Does the will of the Father constrain you to speak the message of truth and keep on message of that which matters to those that God brings across your path? If we would see this world reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be committed to do the will of God no matter where it takes us and no matter the cost. As we bow our heads, the harvest fields need more laborers. All different kinds of laborers who give up their own will to do the will of the Father. Just have one question for you this morning. What does God want you to do in the harvest field? I encourage you today, obey without delay.